Today's sermon text is from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. This is on page 881 of the Pew Bible. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of an unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. How beautiful is the face of she who reads good news. Um, Let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us a word that is true. We thank you for sending your son to die for us that we might know what true life is. May that life ring loudly this morning through your word. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. When I was in college, I heard a, I think he was a pastor, Christian leader, give a talk. I don't remember what the talk was about. I don't even remember who he was or why he was giving this talk, but I remember him telling a story. And uh, he grew up as a kind of agnostic atheist. His parents were um, atheists, were very hostile to established religion. And so he had no... uh, what's the word, no, um, uh, <laughs> no awareness of Christianity, no exposure, that was what I was looking for, he had no exposure to Christianity, and when he got to college, he began to be spiritually curious, and so he decided one day he wanted to go to church, and so he grabbed a friend of his who was also an atheist and had no church background to go with him so he wouldn't go alone, so he went to this church, and he had some pretty funny anecdotes about, you know, again, someone who's never been to church, 
knows almost nothing about Christianity and just, you know, the various parts of the service and how you are kind of receiving that as someone who has no idea what's going on. But his one goal was that no one would know that he has no idea what was going on. So he just did what everyone else was doing. When people would stand up, he would stand up. If they'd sing, he would kind of pretend like he was singing. If, you know, if they were praying, he bowed his head. He listened to the sermon. And it was all going well until the end of the service when they had communion. Now, different churches celebrate communion differently. And the way this church did it is they actually had a, a cup of wine, and they would pass it around the sanctuary. So you'd give it to the person on the row, and then they would uh, uh, take a drink, and then they would um, turn to the person on their side and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, give it to them, and it would move down the row. So it started, and of course, when you say that, you're whispering, you know, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And so this man, who's now a Christian pastor, he actually had the good side of the deal because he was on the left where his friend was on the right. And so he received it from a regular tender who whispered that. And granted, he has no exposure to Christianity, and so it's just, it's just you know, gibberish to him. And so he takes it and kind of mutters gibberish to his friend. And then his friend takes it, but then he's thinking, okay, now what is my friend going to say to the person on his right who is likely a regular attender? Because he not only doesn't know what's going on, but he didn't have the benefit of at least hearing what was being said. And so he's sitting there thinking, what is my friend going to do? And so his friend turns to the man on his right and says, the cup of wonder. <laughs> and you just got to think, poor guy. <laughs> like, what a situation to be in. Now, the story's funny in a lot of ways, but it does kind of remind us of how this thing we do called communion, which we celebrate frequently, um, we're very used to it, is honestly very strange. It's got some very bizarre parts of it. it. It celebrates the death of our Messiah. You usually don't celebrate the death of someone. We celebrate it. Uh, it has very graphic imagery. Jesus' blood, his body broken. And then it involves eating a little bit of food and drinking a little bit of juice or wine. It's a strange practice that we engage in, but it's one of the two ordinances that every Christian throughout the world, throughout the history of the church, has celebrated. Whether you're Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant Christian, whether you're a 21st century, you know, non-denominational Christian in the suburbs, or a first century direct descendant of an apostle, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion. The other one is baptism. And so it's deeply important. And in fact, in the text this morning, we see why Christians throughout history, throughout the world, celebrate it because it was instituted by our Lord himself. And we're going to see that in communion, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is teaching his disciples the meaning and significance of his death. And also, it, he's teaching his disciples that it's been given as a gift for the church to strengthen our faith while we wait for Jesus' return. So to give you an outline of, of our time this morning, we'll have three points. And the first one is the heart of Christ— Second point is a long fast, but it will end. And the third point is a new Passover. Now again, to remind us where we are in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. And Luke before this, you know, a couple, couple chapters might cover six months, but as we come to the end, time slows down. And a couple chapters covers just a day or two. And his time in Jerusalem has been tumultuous. Uh, he's bad, had a public debate with the religious leaders. The simmering tension between him and the kind of established Judaism of the day has now 
completely ruptured. And he has publicly rebuked the religious leaders in a way that shamed them. And Jesus has made prophecies about the temple being destroyed, which is, again, the epicenter of institutional Judaism. He's made statements about how the world will end. It's been a wild day and a half, two days. And here, again, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, we're going to be mostly looking at verses 14 to to 23. I'm going to briefly summarize verses 1 to 13 because it gives us parts of the story that are, are helpful to know but we'll be spending most of our time on, on the actual institution of, of the Lord's Supper. But again, in, in the verses 1 to 13, as it gives us some kind of preparatory uh, uh, information about the storyline, we're going to see Jesus, Judas's betrayal and then some preparations made for the Passover. So go ahead and follow along as I read verses 1 to 6 again for us. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away, and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented, and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So we're given the setting, which is also the setting for the Lord's Supper, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. Now, Passover was a meal that celebrated um, the great Passover of, of, of deliverance when God delivered his people from Egypt. It was a meal, and then it was followed by a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the, the context of the Passover is important, so I'm just going to do a quick kind of rehearsal of what that story involved. So Israel is in slavery in Egypt, Uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, tells him to let his people go. Pharaoh refuses. There are ten plagues. Pretty bad in Egypt at this point, but Pharaoh refuses to allow Israel to go free. And then finally, God brings the hammer that really breaks the back of the camel, to change that, that metaphor, by sending the angel of death. And every firstborn son in the land of Egypt dies on that night. But... Any person, and this was given to the Jews, but if an Egyptian had done this, it would have worked the same. But anyone who took a a, a lamb and slaughtered the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintel, the angel of death would pass over that house. And so when they, when they would celebrate the Passover, which, by the way, I mean, there's so many emotions mixed up in the Passover. There's, there's joy in God's deliverance that he delivered and saved his people. And there's great grief in the, in the trap, you know, in the judgment that was brought on Egypt. Um, it's a complex uh, celebration, but the, the point of it is it's celebrating God's uh, deliverance of Israel, God's care for Israel, and also his grace, because God did, not, God did not deliver Israel because they were better than Egypt, but because they believed God when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lintels. So it also celebrates God's mercy and his grace. And then again, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread would have been a week after this meal, and it's remembering God's provision for Israel in the wilderness as they ate manna. Now, one thing that's a little bit confusing is sometimes it'll refer to Passover as that whole week, the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or sometimes it refers just to the meal. But in this situation, it's talking just about this meal where they celebrated God's deliverance. In the midst of celebrating God's goodness, we see a betrayal and a planned murder. Again, the religious leaders are no longer satisfied with discrediting Jesus. They want to kill him at this point. But they can't, at least not publicly, 
because the people still very much like Jesus. And if they try to take him out in broad daylight, it could lead to a riot. The people might turn on the religious leaders themselves. They're looking for a way to get Jesus when he's by himself so they can take him out. And the way they get that is through one of Jesus' own 12 disciples, Judas. One of the questions, I mean, this is one of the most infamous betrayals in the history of of humanity. We have to ask, why did Judas betray Jesus? Here's a man who walked with Jesus for three years, saw him open the eyes of the blind, saw him heal a, a man with paralysis, heard him teach words of life, and here he betrays him. Why, why would Judas do that? And, and there are different ways people speculate. Sometimes people try to maybe rehabilitate Judas's reputation by saying Judas was maybe trying to prod Jesus into stepping up into kind of a military, you know, messiahship, to try to take up the sword. But that's all speculation. I think more likely it was just simple greed. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that Judas was the treasurer of the group and he would regularly help himself from the funds that were given for the ministry. And it's interesting, in verse 5, it says when he comes, the way it's worded, it says uh, he goes to the religious leaders and they were glad and they agreed to give him money. He goes to the religious leaders with a financial proposition. He says, if you give me X amount of money, I'll give you Jesus. He does it because he's greedy which may seem like, really, you would deliver up the Lord of life for money. But Paul himself wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, even betrayal and murder. But what's interesting, though, is that this betrayal brings out a theme that we're going to see continually throughout the Passion Week, which is that in the midst of chaos and uncertainty and craziness, Jesus remains Lord. Typically, when someone's betrayed, it kind of assumes that they're being deceived, right? The person didn't see it coming. You think of the kind of, you know, the, the, the Shakespeare play, uh, Julius Caesar, where Julius is betrayed by his friend Brutus, and he says, you too, Brutus, this famous line. He's shocked. He's deceived. It's, it's a weakness in the person. But Jesus is betrayed, but he knows it's coming the whole time. In fact, at the end of our passage in verses 21 to 23, He tells Judas, he knows, he says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And in another gospel narrative, he actually tells Judas, more or less, I know it's you. Go do the deed. Jesus knows what's coming. He may be betrayed. Okay, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to die in weakness and humiliation. But he remains Lord the whole time. And while he will give up his life when it is time, he'll give it up when it is his time. He will allow himself to be handed over to religious leaders when it works for him. And he wants to eat one last meal with his disciples, and so they will not be able to take him until then. Jesus remains Lord. As the Passion Week, we're going to see it descends into greater and greater darkness and lies and deceptions from the people who are supposed to be the religious leaders as things spin out of control, as things get darker and grimmer. Jesus remains Lord. He's planned this out from the beginning. He's still in control. And this is such an encouragement to us because sometimes it may seem like our lives are spinning out of control or uncertain. And that's how it seems. And from the disciples' perspective, as the Passion Week goes along, it would have seemed like everything is falling apart. But Jesus is Lord. No matter how it seems, Jesus is Lord.
Well, that's the kind of lead up now to finally to the, Lord, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is where I want to spend our time. And our, again, our first point is we see the heart of Jesus in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 15. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There are theological reasons for why Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover, but he begins with personal reasons. He wanted to eat with his disciples one last time before the end because he genuinely loved them. If the goal of this meal was just to give them the institution of the Lord's Supper, that would have been enough. A gift to us as a church, a sacred memorial, a spiritual reality. But if his goal was just to give them content, he would not have made it in a meal. Think of it this way. Say uh, a coworker or your boss or someone you work with invites you over for dinner. Very flattered. When someone invites us over for dinner, we're flattered. It's like, you want to spend time with me? You want to make me a meal? This is great. So you show up for the dinner, and dinner's about to begin, and your coworker says, hold on a minute, pulls out his laptop, and gives you a PowerPoint presentation for the meal about some new product line at your work. At first, you'd probably be pretty annoyed, like, why are we doing this during the meal? And then you would have thought, look, if you just needed to tell me about something, give me a PowerPoint presentation, we could have just set up a meeting at work. Like, this is not why we have meals together. If you want to present content or information, you give a PowerPoint presentation. But if you want to be with someone, eat a meal with them. We see the heart of Jesus. And Jesus is approaching the end. When you look at the timeline, this is Thursday night. Good Friday is when he dies. I mean, the end of his life is approaching, and he earnestly desires to spend just, just one last meal with his beloved disciples. John writes it this way in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's the heart of Jesus. He loved unworthy sinners like his disciples. The Gospels are painfully honest about the mistakes and the failures of the disciples, about all the ways they got it wrong, about all the ways they messed up. They were not a promising bunch. You had a, a tax collector, which was a, a synonym for a financial crook. You had a, uh, a zealot, which was a potential religious terrorist, right? You had a brash and arrogant fisherman. You had uh, two brothers who had very violent tendencies, who when Jesus' ministry was rejected, asked Jesus to bring down fire and wipe out an entire village. These are the 12 disciples whom Jesus loves to the end. Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus, the heart of Jesus, is that he loves unworthy people, unworthy sinners, and he loved them to the end. And Jesus even knew, not only were these flawed men, they were men who would abandon him in his darkest moment. Like at the lowest point of Jesus' life, he would be completely abandoned, but yet he loves them to the end. I think many of us <clears throat> realize in a theoretical sense that Jesus loves us. It's because he's, he's God. That's what he does. The Bible says so, but we're not as sure that Jesus likes us. If Jesus were here, would he, 
Would he want to get a cup of coffee with me? <clears throat> Would he want to come over to my house for a meal and just linger over the meal and just be with me? Again, Jesus didn't just love his disciples in a theoretical, theoretical manner. He loved them and he liked them. He wanted to spend the last moments of his life with them just to be with them. This is the heart of Christ who loves and likes unworthy sinners. But one other reason that Jesus earnestly desired to eat this last meal with them was that it was going to be a long wait until he could spend this kind of time with them again. This brings us to our second point, which is a long fast, but it will end. Now before we start actually reading about the meal, it's helpful to know that the, the Passover meal kind of had a, had a set pattern to it. Uh, it was kind of like a liturgy that went with it, and, and it involved a lot of um, giving thanks over cups of wine. It, it began with a thanksgiving over a cup of wine, and there had been some reflecting on the Passover, and then another thanks over a cup of wine. And So when Jesus is like holding up cups of wine and all this, okay, it would have made sense in the kind of established pattern of that meal. Just some, some background information. But here we get the long fast, but it will end. Follow along as I read verses 16 to 18. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In your Bible, in verse 16, it it probably says, for I tell you, I will not eat it. And there's probably a footnote that says, some manuscripts say again. So I tell you, I will not eat it again. Um, that's likely the sense here because that's what the other gospel narratives have. And it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, as he's eating a Passover, I will not eat a Passover with you. What he's saying is, look, this, 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 this meal we're having together of intimate fellowship, <clears throat> I will not eat with you in this kind of way. I will not be able to fellowship with you in this kind of way until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Or as it says in verse 18, until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus, he's telling his disciples, they're not going to have that kind of immediate relationship, immediate fellowship, closeness of his presence with him again until the end of the world. There's going to be a long fast. Jesus is trying to prepare them for this. And this brings out two truths for us. Again, the first truth is that there will be a long fast. They're eating this Passover meal now, but a fast is coming, a a wait, an absence of Jesus. And this is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 15, where it says, And the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The disciples didn't fast when Jesus was with them because he was with them. They had the very physical presence of Jesus, but there's going to come a time which they will no longer have that immediate fellowship with the risen Lord, and then they will fast, and then they will mourn. And this brings out, and this really makes sense and helps explain a lot of Christian discipleship because when we are Christians and we have the Spirit of God living in us, what that means is that deep down inside, what we want more than anything else is to be in the presence of the Lord. We may stray at times, we may, we may, you know, at times be unfaithful, but when you dig down into our hearts, if the Spirit of God is there, 
What we want more than anything is to be in the presence of our Lord. But we see Christ in this life only by eyes of faith. It's like looking through a veil. It's like talking to your beloved on Zoom. And so we mourn because we want to be with Jesus, but we don't have that kind of direct, immediate fellowship with him as the disciples had as they're eating with him. And so we go through seasons of spiritual dryness, even dark nights of the soul. In this life, in Christian discipleship, we will experience spiritual wildernesses. It's what Jesus is telling us. Now, it may be because there's sin that's unaddressed in our lives. Uh, and we need, to, we need to address that if that's the case. That's why when, when we feel distant from the Lord, when he feels far from us, we first want to examine, is there a sin that I am not repenting of? Is there something going on? But it may also just be the nature of living in a, in, in a time where Jesus is absent. Yes, he's present by the Spirit. He's present by faith. But he's telling his disciples, I will not have fellowship like this with you again until I come back. That's just part of Christian discipleship. We... We fast and we mourn until Christ comes back. The first truth, we will experience a long fast. But the second truth, which is just as important as the first one, is that the fast will end. Jesus is saying, I will not eat this with you again until I eat it with you again. And the assumption there is that we will one day have that kind of close fellowship with the Lord. This is what theologians call the eschatological banquet. The biblical metaphor of heaven has nothing to do with floating around on clouds playing harps. That is Hollywood. It is not the Bible. The way the Bible pictures heaven is like a great feast where you're eating, you're eating delicious food, by the way, with your closest lifelong friends, your closest family members, having the kind of, the, the kind of fellowship where your heart is so full it feels like you're bursting. And then at the head of the table is our Lord himself. We will one day eat with Jesus where we'll be able to just ask him straight out, Jesus, here are my questions, where the doubts will vanish, our questions will be answered, our hearts will be satisfied. That will come. The fast will end. And I tell you what, this paints a profound description of what a Christian should be like as we wait for our Lord to return. And it's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 6.10 as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're sorrowful. We mourn the absence of our Lord. We fast for his presence. But we're not glum, not negative. We rejoice because of what we have coming, because of what we received in the past. But we're not trite. We're not superficial. The greatest happiness in this world, the the greatest amount of happiness you could have in this world is still tinged with what C.S. Lewis calls homesickness, as we long for the only one with whom we're really at home. At the same time, the greatest tragedy can never crush us because we know one day we will feast with our Lord. There will be a long fast, but it will one day end. And for this long fast, as we wait for our Lord to return, Jesus gives us a sacred rite with sacred symbols that reminds us of what is true and strengthens us for this wait. This brings us to our third point. 
which is a new Passover. Again, follow along with me as I read verses 19 to 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And here we have Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Why do we do this once a month? It's because Jesus ordained it, instituted it, gave it to us as a practice right here in Luke. And Christians have celebrated this again for 2,000 years. But we have to ask, what's it all about? What's it doing? Well, I have three things that the Lord's Supper does, or that the Lord's Supper is. And the first is that the Lord's Supper, which is also called communion, is a remembrance. Again, look at the end of verse 19. It says, do this in remembrance of me. If you look at our communion table in front of me, it says, do this. That's where it's taken from, is Luke 22, 19. And this is where it's helpful to remember the background of Passover. Because a Passover meal, likewise, is a remembrance. It was a time for Israel to remember how God had delivered them when they were completely defenseless, when they had no hope. God, in his grace and his mercy, delivered them. And they would remember that every year in the Passover meal. Well, likewise, in communion, we remember God's work of salvation. But in, in, in this work of salvation, the lamb that slain was God's own son, who was slain for the sins of the world. We remember that we too were once slaves, maybe not physical slaves, but slaves to our own desires, slaves in our ignorance, slaves to darkness, to the forces of this world, and Christ set us free at the cost of his own life. And we remember that we too were passed over. We were spared deserved judgment. Not because we marked our houses with the, lamb of, the blood of a lamb, but because we ourselves are marked with the blood of the Lamb of God. We remember this. We remember God's salvation and deliverance through vivid imagery of bread and juice standing for Jesus' body and his blood. The second thing, though, is the Lord's Supper is a spiritual reality. It's not just a memorial. It's not just a remembrance as if we could, you know, do pizza and pop, and it'd be the same thing, or we could celebrate it, you know, by myself on a mountaintop, and it's, it doesn't matter. There's a spiritual reality behind communion that's going on. Now, I have to admit, there's good faith disagreements on how we understand Jesus when he says, this is my body, and this is my blood. Christians have disagreed on what this means. Um, how was Christ present in, in the celebration of communion? So the traditional Catholic understanding is they would read it very literally. When Jesus said, this is my body, it's literally his body, physically his body. His wine is my blood. It's physically the blood of Christ. And they have kind of philosophical distinctions they make to explain how that's possible. That's one tradition. Luther's understanding was that, well, it's not physically Christ's body, but it's spiritually his body. Christ is actually present in the elements. And then you have Zwingli, who said, no, no, it's just a memorial. So Christians have run the gambit of how we understand this, but I think Luther was right. And the reason I think that is because of 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that Paul is, is talking to the Corinthians about idol worship. He's saying, look, you can't just go through the motions of idol worship because it'll help you societally 
as if there's no realities behind these. Like, you may not believe in these idols, but they are really real spiritual realities. And he compares it to communion. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He doesn't say, isn't it a memorial or a metaphor or a participation? What that means, I'm not sure I know. But when we take the bread and we take the juice, in some way we are participating in Christ. In some way Christ is present. This is my body. This is my blood. Which is why, by the way, we never approach communion in a cavalier way because Christ is really present. We prepare our hearts. We confess sins. We approach with soberness because Jesus is present in his elements. And likewise, because he's present, this really is a gift for us. Every time we take communion, we can know Christ is present, strengthening our hearts in faith. There are spiritual realities in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual reality. But thirdly, the Lord's Supper is a corporate confession. We do a confession of faith. We did the Apostles' Creed today. It's like that, but it's not using words. It's using eating the bread, drinking the wine or the juice. And when we do this together as one body, what we're saying is, I really believe. Like, I, I'm not just saying words, but I, I really believe 2,000 years ago, God became man, then died on a cross, and then came back to life. And that anyone who places their faith in Jesus, they can have forgiveness and freedom. Like, I really believe that. I'm going to stake my life on that. We as a church, like, this is, this is why we're here. This is why we wake up in the morning on a Sunday morning. This is why every day we try to die to ourselves so that Christ might live in us more. The Lord's Supper is our corporate confession to the world and to each other. This is what is central to us. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ loved his disciples. He showed his heart by loving his disciples to the end, even though they were unworthy. And he prepared his disciples, and he's preparing us, that they and we will have a long fast in Christ's absence, and we're still waiting. But he will come again. And that fast and that waiting will not be forever. And as we wait, in the Lord's Supper, we're strengthened in our faith, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Jesus, our hearts are full, knowing that you love not the righteous, but the unworthy. We thank you for this institution you've given us in which we're reminded viscerally of the main truths of our faith, your body was broken for us, that your blood was shed for us. May you strengthen our hearts in faith as we partake. May it be our corporate confession, our proclamation together that we really believe all that we believe. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it's not the first Sunday of the month, but I figured it'd be very appropriate since I preached on the Lord's Supper to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to do. Now, usually it's once a month, but at least once a month, we take time in our service to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This meal is an outward and visible sign 
of the grace that is shown to us in the death of Jesus. And as we share in the bread and juice together, it's an invitation to feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In this meal, we're faced again with God's love for the unworthy, and we're strengthened by faith in the one whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed for us. This morning, I invite everyone who professes his seer faith in Jesus, who is living according to his word and good conscience, to join me in participating in this meal. If in good conscience it would not be right for you to participate, then use this time to reflect on God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, our tradition at Vine Street is we pass out the bread and juice, um, and then together we, we take the elements. Um, and also, at the, again, at the rear of the sanctuary, we have a offering plate for our benevolence fund. So at this point, I'm going to invite our ushers forward. I'm going to pray for us again. Christ, may you prepare our hearts to engage in this sacred Christian practice with which you yourself instituted for us. 2,000 years ago. May you use it to strengthen our faith, to move our hearts towards you, to encourage us in this discipleship journey we're on. We offer this time to you. In the name of our Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit. Amen.